be the kind of person who's never satisfied, who always has a bigger vision. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Happy Marketer Connection. I'm Sue Freck, and I'm your host of the podcast, brought to you by Vesta. Each week, along with my guests, other fellow passionate marketers, we'll explore engaging and inventive marketing strategies and toast brands making impactful consumer connections. Please kick back, relax, and join our happy half hour of marketing inspiration and positivity, and come away a happier and smarter marketer. I am so excited to introduce my guest today, Louis Schiff. Louis is an expert when it comes to entrepreneurism and helping entrepreneurs such as myself. When I think about the definition of entrepreneurism, I think about, you know, it's a person or a group of people that really organize and operate and assume the risk of a business venture. And I love that the word risk is in that definition because I know when I started this business, I, which is probably a good thing, I had no idea how much risk is involved. And we know some of the most successful entrepreneurs had to take significant risk in order to bring their companies where they are today. So my guest today, Louis Schiff, is the chairman of Birthing of Giants, the highly regarded fellowship program held two times a year at MIT and Oxford University. Louis truly enjoys bringing together thought leaders with proactive business owners, really making each year their best year yet. He's also the author of Business Brilliant, Surprising Lessons from the Greatest Self-Made Business Icons, The Middle Class Millionaire, The Influence and Affluence, and The First Habit, What I Learned While Interviewing Over a Thousand Success Stories. So please join me in welcoming Lewis to the show. So welcome back to another episode of the Happy Marketer Connection. I am really excited for my guest today, Lewis Schiff. And Lewis is going to talk to us not only about his expertise in entrepreneurism, but we're going to find out more about his program in the birthing of giants. So Lewis, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Sue. So I'd like to start with a icebreaker. And my icebreaker question is, why entrepreneurs? <laughs> you get to work with a lot of different people. Why entrepreneurs? I actually have a, a unique answer to that. So I uh, grew up in New York City. I'm a New York City kid. You know, my family's been here forever. And you can say a lot of things about New York City people, but one of the qualities we share is we're sort of fast thinking, fast talking, thick skinned, sarcastic, argumentative. And I just described entrepreneurs. And you might have described me, so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I like the idea of uh, broadening my horizons outside of New York. And, um, and I, you know, visit places and I had business dealings with other people. But I have found that when I go to any town, any small town, any big town, if I'm spending my time with entrepreneurs, I'm kind of spending my time with New Yorkers. And that's what I like. <laughs> Love it. And, you know, I moved a year ago from the New York area to Denver and uh, Boulder area. And I just absolutely loved nothing is like the energy and the people from New York. So I do miss that, certainly. So talk to me about Birthing of Giants. You know, what is this program founded? Who attends? The, I want the whole entire <laughs> deal and package, all the history that comes with it. I'll try to keep it brief. It's a wonderful program that's based on a curriculum that a group of really outstanding entrepreneurs of design. So I'm talking about, as you know, the Inc. 5000 list tracks the owners of fastest growing companies. And when you say that phrase, it, what gets lost are the details. We're talking about people like you who have started with usually, you know, the little bit of a seed of an idea, probably based on expertise you already had. And you've grown it and grown it and grown it. But you know what that's like. It's you're, you're growing it, but you're also always at your own bleeding edge of what you've ever done before. 
And so there comes a point where you've proven yourself and Inc. 5000 is a pretty good marker for that. You've built a company that's grown for at least three years or longer. And that's when we invite you into Birthing Giants to learn what it takes to keep growing in a sustainable fashion. So sustainable, super important word. In this case, we mean not collapsing along the way. So, you know, growing at a fast rate is, is worth being proud of, but it also means that usually your infrastructure is not as far ahead as your needs, right? I mean, the essence of a fast growth company is you keep making more and more promises to your clients, but you don't exactly know how you're going to meet them. And so come into the Birthing and Giants program where the people who uh, helped us develop the curriculum, folks like Norm Brodsky from Inc. Magazine, George Gendron, who created the Inc. 500 list, um, you know, all these pretty interesting people said, what does it take not just to get on the list, but to stay on the list? Not just to grow, but to grow a substantial, sustainable, and fundamentally sound company that, here's the most important part, that one day will be valuable to some other company or person who wants to buy it. And this is where we have to take this fast moving, you know, million miles an hour entrepreneur and say, wait a second, let's look at the whole thing. Let's look at the fundamental business model. Let's look at the balance sheet. Let's look at the, how this model gets to be 10 times bigger without cratering on itself. And let's build a company that will keep growing in a way where some outsider, private equity, strategic buyer, you name it, is going to say, well, that's a company that's worth buying, and I'm willing to pay a pretty penny for that company. And that doesn't mean that everyone in our program wants to sell their business or should sell their business, but it's a way of thinking about how you build your business. Yeah, and building value, which is regardless of whether you keep it or you sell it, that is certainly a, a goal across the way. So when, did, when was Birthing of Giants founded? How many years have you been around? It's actually 25 years old, believe it or not. Wow. Um, wow. And it was started by the people who started the Inc. 500 list, now called the 5000 list. Um, and it's gone through some iterations in other people's hands. But about five years ago, uh, I took it over with, uh, with the original group. I got the band back together. I got the original <laughs> faculty <laughs> to help me re reboot it, really. So about five years now, we've been working at it. Um, and it really started in the offices of Inc. Magazine and kind of found its way outside of it, as many businesses often do. It's what's interesting is that original faculty were actually in the early days of varying 500 experience themselves. Now they're all post-exit people. You know, they're, they're, there's about a billion dollars of exits between our five-member board. So, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in there. And so they, we said, let's build it knowing what we know now. Let's build it. You know, we've got a company that's going to join that maybe is five or 10 years into their journey. Let's, let's help them build it knowing what it means to be 20 or 25 years into your journey. And it asks a lot of a business owner, but asks for very little. It asks for five days of your life. That is both <laughs> a lot and very little. And so in five days, we take you through the whole thing of what it takes to, to build a sustainable company that really has value to the next owner. Um, and what happens out of that is your life should get easier, right? Because when you build a company that someone else is going to buy, probably the biggest thing we're taking up is, well, what will they buy after you're gone? You know, they mm, hand yes. you a check for 10 or $100 million, you're not sticking around. So the company has to run without you. So in a way, in this five-day period, we show you how to build a company that's easier to run because the only way to build a company that's valuable to a buyer is to build a company that doesn't need you as much. Right, right. You have to do that. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's worthwhile and it starts people in this process. Yeah, so who should attend? I mean, obviously it sounds exciting, I'm sure for so many of the listeners. Who's that perfect... Uh, uh, it's, the person, 
it's you. It's a person who has built a company where they've proven that they know how to build something to scale. But the, you know that scale is here, then it goes up. The way we would put it is when you want to transition from being an entrepreneur to being a CEO. Mm. You know that person who says, I'm, "I've been really good at hustling, really good at figuring out. I'm smart. Nobody doubts how hard I am at working, but I don't necessarily know how to build a big, complicated company." And we we took, show them how to do that. Yeah, that's amazing. So what's the relationship with MIT, Oxford? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we have these great partnerships where um, they host us. Uh, you know, there's a, I'm sure your listeners have heard of executive education, but exec ed is really for corporate America. Um, mm. These schools like MIT and Oxford don't really have a lot of inroads with the person I would call the entrepreneur. Again, I'm looking at you and I know that this is who you are. They're pretty happy and delighted to be in contact with this entrepreneur CEO. And so at, um, at MIT, they just do a great job of just giving us a beautiful place to meet. And, you know, it's really just a kind of a hosting operation. Uh, at Oxford, we've hooked up with the, the innovation community at Oxford. So I'm sure some of your listeners uh, have heard some of the news lately about, um, you know, how Oxford is one of the places where a coronavirus vaccine is being produced. But really, the important thing about Oxford is that there's a gigantic R&D operation at Oxford, okay? So we brought about uh, 10 business owners there for, a, for an innovation conference. And it's kind of a fun moment. We brought 10 American entrepreneurs to Oxford. And, you know, they talked the way we, they talk, we talked the way we talk. <laughs> and at some point they came, they pulled me aside and they said, we need people like your guys, your men and women in our program. Uh, we are pretty good at using R&D to kind of invent the craziest, weirdest stuff you ever heard of. But we don't know how to take it to market. We just met your 10 entrepreneurs. We can see they eat and sleep taking things to market, right? That's yep. what they're all about. So they said, can we get you guys to come back you know, in the future and we'll show you all the cool stuff we've been working on and maybe your killer entrepreneurs are gonna wanna pick it up and run with it. And so we created this thing called Moonshots and Moneymakers where we bring moneymakers, people who know how to run businesses that make money and we put them in contact with people who have moonshot ideas. I love it. See, you know, what kind of magic happens. I love it. That, yeah. And of course, you're making me drool because that program sounds incredible. And I'm sure, again, any entrepreneur listening uh, would, would agree with that. So you've talked about the Harvard Business School professor, Clayton Christensen, and disruption theory. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that is? You know, we tell these great stories. We have... Um, we're launching a campaign now about all this, the $100 million moves that our Birthing of Giants fellows have made. So that's the story. But underneath that story is things that you know well. It's things you have to do extraordinarily differently in order to get a different outcome. Small companies have to disrupt themselves. The job of small companies is usually to, to disrupt bigger companies. And so you know that your success in the long run depends on you being really disruptive you know, to your industry. And so we internally, we call that financial model transformation. And um, the king of disruption is Clayton Christensen, who passed away in uh, early 2020, just recently. But his contribution is widely recognized as being the father of Silicon Valley. What that means is he actually never lived in Silicon Valley, but just the idea of what Silicon Valley means to us is tiny companies that disrupt big companies. So he wrote in a way that's kind of fully understood now, but he wrote 25 years ago that 
there needed to be capital formation, you know, like VC, we call it now, venture capital, yep. combined with some really smart, hardworking people who bet it all on something like a technology maybe that was meant to blow the doors off of something else. So the best example we all use is, um, it's so old now, it feels like ancient history, Blockbuster and Netflix. Mm. Blockbuster certainly could have invested in streaming technology. It just seemed so rinky-dink to them. It was expensive. It didn't work very well. You know, they just couldn't get their head around it. Yeah. And Netflix said, you know, we're going all in on this thing. Well, you know, obviously Netflix worked out, but these tiny companies have to find ways to come up with financial models, often driven by technology decisions, to disrupt the big boys. And, the, and so Clay Christensen was the father of studying that domain. And so Moonshots and Moneymakers, which is the Oxford program, is kind of built around that idea that, you know, we're going to take really smart entrepreneurs, put them in front of some really cool tech, and they're going to say, I know how I can take down the giant in my industry with this market leading opportunity and do it and bet on it. Yeah. And that's the whole game. I love it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That makes so much sense. So, you know, you talked about Silicon Valley and, and obviously Clayton didn't, wasn't from there, but since that era of Silicon Valley, like talk about who's really created wealth. I, I love that question. Right. So I think it's people like you, Sue, meaning it's a person who started out in a field, worked maybe for a bigger or biggish company and learned something. And then kind of the simple example is, you know, you one day said, hey, you know, we do this thing in, you know, red, yellow, blue and green. Why don't we do it in purple? And your big company said, well, we can't make enough money doing it in purple. And you said, I think I can make enough money if I do it in purple. And you spin off, you do it, you take your contacts, you take your education, and then you make it in purple. And it turns out that the market wanted it in purple. That's who creates wealth in America. Start out in a big company, learn, get your contacts, learn your craft, find the opportunity that spins out into a small company and disrupt. Do you think, I mean, obviously there's tons of entrepreneurs that haven't, and I came from the big companies. You know, I was at Kraft, I was at GSK, and I, I agree. Like, I had a manager that said, stop working so hard, you're making all of us look bad. I, I knew immediately that's not where I belonged. And that's a great thing for someone to say to someone who's as motivated as I am, um, which got me to leave. You know, that those are those moments that they get you to leave because you're like, this what? This, they're not valuing that? So do you think that entrepreneurs have to have that, those fundamentals or do they need to have a mentor? Like where, because I do know that I got operational and certainly P&L experience at some of the big companies that I was at. So what we're seeing are that um, the reason why I'm going to keep coming back to moonshots and moneymakers is, so you are a moneymaker. You learned how to build a business that makes money. You, right, you don't have a large venture capital investor funding your loss. You have to make money quarter by quarter. And so you build your company the way you build it, which is to say, you didn't build things that would pay off three years from now. You're building things that pay off 30, 60, 90 days from now. And I, and I know that we talked already about what you're working on, and it so fits this model. You started out doing something that was labor intensive as, a, as an independent uh, business. And then you knew while you, were, while you were toiling along doing this labor intensive thing, that a big idea would come along and that the little company you'd built and the, you know, the people you'd pull together and your own reputation would be a good match for that technological opportunity. And so to me, that's, you're a moneymaker that became a moonshot, okay? Because when you're done, Sue, you know your company's gonna be worth, you know, 10 or 100 times more than it is today. That's contrasted to the, I'm, I'm gonna sound very judgmental now when I say this stuff, but 
that contrasted to the kid who's sitting in the coffee shop with doing the PowerPoint deck, trying to raise a million dollars. And his opening or her opening is, I don't know anything about this field, which is why I'm the perfect person to do it. You know, like, <laughs> like one day I, you know, couldn't get a taxi. So I started Uber, you know, yeah. like yeah. this kind of story. Yeah, like. right. And I would say, no, I think the moneymaker is much more positioned to create and develop the moonshot than the person whose claim to expertise is, I don't know anything, which is why I'm the right person. Right. Um, or I, you know, I played this sport for a year, so I know why we should build a new helmet for the sport or something like that. And give me a million dollars and I'm going to start from scratch because that million dollars has to do what you've done over years. Find trusted people to work with, develop the network of customers that listen to you. And so you took years to do it and presumably you own, you know, a lot of your company. This younger person is going to take whatever, a hundred thousand or a million dollars from somebody. And by the time they figured out what you figured out, they're going to own 5% of their company if they're successful at all. Right. So my advice to a younger person is find somebody like you, learn how you did it, you know, go to a bigger company, maybe learn a craft, learn their trade, build their network, and then look for the, the, the moonshot opportunity while they're, pl- you know, working their, their moneymaker business. I mean, yeah. that's really what I'm I talking about. I love that. I've had two people leave my company and I, and I love when they do this. So this is, it was weird to say, to go start something. And I love that, you know, they were, and they'll say, I learned everything that I needed to know from working with you for six years so that I could go do what my passion is or what my idea is. And I, I just, I love that, that I was able to help them with that. I, I didn't have that. So um, I'm, I'm grateful that well, I can provide that. sounds like that your manager <laughs> who said stop working so hard acted like a reverse mentor. Yes, you. that's true. That is true. And I do have good mentors now, but not that. So I love, I don't remember when this was that when I read, you know, Uber's actually a technology company. Peloton's an actually a technology company. I use both of those services. I have a, I never thought of it, but you know, you know how important technology is, you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship. So just talk to me about that, because that was a little bit of a later. I mean, I'm actually passionate about technology, but didn't realize that all of these companies, their uniqueness is their technology and their data. Right. Well, so this is the real big reversal here, which is, and this is really explains the success of the birthing of giants companies that have had these gigantic, you know, $100 million moves is they apply technology almost always to accomplish one or two things. One is to increase the gross margin of their business. So a lot of um, you know, smaller business owners that are growing fast have businesses where they solve problems by throwing a lot of people at it. You know? And then they realize that the gross margin kind of stinks after a while. People cost money. <laughs> yeah. And then the second is that um, they kind of run regional businesses. Like they, they operate really well in, in the Southwest or wherever they operate, but they're not really global or national or anything like that. And so we teach people to look at technology through the prism of how do you reduce gross margins and how do you increase the potential addressable size of the audience you can serve? And I would put it even another way, who cares if it's technology? If it, if it reduces your gross margin and it increases your audience, go for it. It's just that the answer is almost always technology. Right, right. So we're not telling companies to be tech companies so much as we're telling them to be in the business of reducing gross margins and increasing the audience size and you better figure out technology if you want to do that. Yeah, and, and I do. I, I love following the technology companies and the ones that take those, those huge risks um, that end up with, like you said, the $100 million, $100 million moves. Interested in building a home for your audience? 
Our Vesta solution powers online communities, giving your consumers a home for a world of engagement and connections. To learn more, visit us at vesta-go.com. So looking at like the situation we're in right now, I mean, I was excited when it came to a pandemic that more people would be online. I mean, what better, you know, you know, we build online communities now. We used to be a managed service, sampling, the, uh, you know, ratings and reviews, but we really build online presence for big CPG and small startup brands. So what other sectors do you think, besides what I'm seeing is the plexiglass companies, <laughs> um, but what, besides that, you know, what companies are really in sectors are really best positioned you know, post COVID or during this pandemic time period from your, from your experience? So one of the things is we want, you know, when people hear technology, they think software. And in fact, we have to have the widest aperture of what technology means. So we're seeing companies that are using molecules in different ways, meaning chemicals, you know, obviously that makes sense, right? Everything that's antiviral is through the roof. And so there's a ton of companies like construction companies that can have a kind of an antiviral approach to their business by applying a chemical, you know? And so I, it's some of the most creative things I've seen are people who said, well, technology to me means chemicals or, mo or molecules. And I've enjoyed watching those companies thrive in our community. Um, and I guess this makes sense is companies that have government clients are doing well. Obviously the government is flooding the world with money, all the governments. And there are companies in the birthing and giants community who have learned this uh, sort of one-two trick years ago, which is have a chunk of your business that serves the public sector, because while those contracts may take a longer time to get, they hold fast and steady when things get go wrong. And so the ones who are all in on the government are doing very well. And the ones who have some, you know, there's an old investing theory. It's you should invest in an umbrella company and in a suntan lotion company because whether it's raining or sunny, you're going to make money. <laughs> and that's what I think of now. I think folks who spend time having a, biz a government sector piece to their business are kind of creating a little bit of an insurance policy against times like these. Yeah, I won't say who, who the client is or what sector of the government. It has taken us six months to get this contract signed. But to your point, it will be um, a tremendous partnership if, if we can get it off the ground. Six months um, is very fast, Sue, and only you can do that. <laughs> well, I, it's still not signed yet, so I'm, I'm in the six months. So talk to me in six more months, and we'll see, we'll see where we go with that. So entrepreneurship, I mean, what does the future look like? Again, from your perspective, I love that you get to talk to so many entrepreneurs. What does that look like? So, you know, a lot of people had to become entrepreneurial in the sense that they're working from home. A lot of talent has been dislocated right now. I mean, there's really just a ton of people kind of looking for opportunities now. And entrepreneurship is being boiled down to find out what you're good at. And that's a big question. I mean, what you're passionate about, but also what you're talented at, that has to do with how you make money. That last part is so important. There's a lot of people who say, well, I want to do pottery and I want to start a restaurant. And that's fine because you can actually probably make money with pottery and restaurants, but you got to learn how to make money doing it. You know, if you can't make money, then it's just a hobby. So find out what you're passionate at and what you're good at that can help you make money and then start to build a business around it. And that sounds really simple, but <clears throat> that's entrepreneurship today. It's like, if I talk to you, if I talk to 10 other entrepreneurs, eventually, because I know how to do this conversation, I've done it so much, I'm going to figure out what your answer to this question is. What is it that you're especially good at that has to do with how you make money? 
And we will get to an interesting answer. It'll be, I can understand how to make teams operate, or I can see things before other people do, or I can, I understand the, the consumer, you know, there's going to be some, some good answer. And if your answer today is something like, I'm good at making relationships with people, I mean, that's not good enough. You're going to have to come up with an answer that has to do with how you make money. And then much, much more difficult is how do you scale it? And so <clears throat> kind of a silly answer to this is one of our board members is Jim McCann, the founder of 1-800-Flowers. So he starts out his life as a social worker. He's a practicing social worker as a young man. And today, when you talk to him about his work, he'll talk to you about how being in the flower business and the gifting business, he's got you know, other businesses, allows him to figure out how different cultures commemorate different events at different times, right? A Muslim funeral and a, the, the birth of a child in Mexico are very different types of things. And his company has to figure out how do you talk to that person and get, get to where they're at. And when you listen to him talk about what that means to him and what they keep learning and how you make that into an e-commerce business, Right? How do you recognize a thousand different cultural moments for a thousand different cultures on an e-commerce platform? You realize you're talking to the social worker from 30, ah, 40 years ago. So, so he's evolved how he does it, of course, but he's still that social worker. So that's, you know, that's who he is. He deeply cares about how people experience each other. And yeah. he's turned that into 100 Flowers. Yeah, which is amazing. Otherwise, he'd be working in social work and probably need a second job because <laughs> yeah. it's it's fulfilling to your point. But it's it's yeah, I put it more in the hobby side because it's not. That's why he started million dollars. <laughs> he bought a flower shop as a supplement to his business where he worked at a boys' home. Love it, love it. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. And and I started my career early working for um, women, infant, and children, the WIC program, and. Oh realized, I mean, I wanted to leave after one month, but you know, my father said, you stay at a job for 12 months. So on my, on my 12th month and the last day of that month, you know, I, I went into pharmaceutical sales, but it was, it was truly the, this like, <laughs> it was the psychology of people. Like I was trying to convince these people in this women in and children program, the value of, you know, I was just selling them. And I, they're like, you're so good at this. And it was just, it was, again, it was that DNA of me being in, in the sales and providing the value and listening to them and all the things that make a good salesperson. This, is, this really is the $100 million question, Sue. So you have to answer. I get, I, yes. Do I get to ask you one yes, question? Yes, of course. Of course. Okay. So in about two hours, um, the group of people who, who are part of the Oxford program, the Moonshots and Moneymakers program, we went last year. We're having a little uh, Zoom reunion in about two hours. So fun. And, it's, and it happens to be a mixture of business owners and um, undergraduate students. There was a, there's a school called Ryder University. Yes. And we do this well. in partnership with them. So my question to you is, that person that you were at the WIC program, working in a government office that said, I will do this for the, like, I'll do it for a year because I'm listening to my dad, but that's it. I have to go out there and explode into the world. Yeah. yeah. Now we're going to talk, I'm going to have a bunch of undergrads on the, on the Zoom in a little bit. The real entrepreneurial question is, how do we become more like you? I mean, how do we become that person who says, and I mean this in the best way what I have is not enough. I want more. I want to go for more. I have a bigger vision of myself because that's what all these undergrads want to know. And this is the, one of the hardest times ever to be leaving school. So what do you tell them? What do you want to tell these undergrads about how do you burst into the world wherever you start to wherever you're going to end up? Yeah. I mean, for me, I don't know the bigger answer to that, but for me on a day to day, nothing is ever good enough. Like I'm happy. So it's not one of those like, oh, if I had this, then I'd be happy. Um, it's this constant 
desire to learn and to figure out, but I want it all. Like when I'm sitting in, in that moment too. So when I'm sitting in front of a client and they're giving me a challenge, I'm like, I can do that. Now I can't do all of it right now, but I certainly can do it. I see the end and I tell them about the end. And then like you say, I go back and figure out. But as soon as that end product is built, I want the next thing. So right. I do think it's part of my DNA that I have this confidence also that I can get it done. Like I just, I'm like, yeah, of course that makes sense. Of course I can make that happen. I don't know how you teach that to a group of undergrads, but I do know that I'm never satisfied with the status quo. That's certainly where I come from. So I gave you my answer to entrepreneurship, which is, you know, find out what you're good at that has to do with how you make money and then, you know, and then build a business around it. But, but that's the second half to the question, which is be the kind of person who's never satisfied, who always has a bigger vision. Yeah. Yeah. And I just do. And I think, and all the entrepreneurs that I love being around are the ones that are, you know, again, they're not trying to build a steady business to just, you know, give themselves a, a nice income and be passionate. They are trying to, um, push the envelope, explore, challenge, that those are the people I love surrounding myself. And even employees that I say, the only thing I don't want to ever hear is that, well, we did it that way because it was done like that before. Ah, like, oh my God. <laughs> like, no, I'm actually bringing you in to challenge me and the status quo every single day. Our best ideas have come from people saying, well, why don't we do it like this? Yeah, why don't we? <laughs> so and that's Clayton that. Christensen's uh, book, The Innovator's Dilemma, Disrupt, 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 Disrupt. Yeah, yeah, and I love, I love that part of it. And I think what, so what's different now than, than a 22-year-old, and I've got a 15-year-old who's very entrepreneurial and already knows what she wants to do with her, with her life, but I say the risk-taking. Like, I love to take risks, and if you're risk-adverse, <laughs> even though you want what's in the end, I think you have to be willing to take risks. And they just, I don't know if you've seen that also with the entrepreneurs that you yeah. talk to. <laughs> yeah. And I think that what we, um, what we should all recognize is that this, you know, COVID pandemic put us all into high risk situations with our jobs, with our health, obviously, with how we lived and, and with our finances. And I know it's been stressful, but, but a lot of people are going to get through it. Almost everyone's going to get through yeah, it. Yeah. And so you know, the entrepreneur kind of invites this kind of volatility into their lives. Most people try to avoid it. It's worth remembering that in the last six months, we've all been through it and we're all going to be fine. Yeah. So invite more yeah. of it into your life in productive ways when you're ready to create bigger opportunities instead of, you know, being afraid of it all the time. Yeah. And I say that like when it first happened, yeah, scary, you know, some client contracts slowed down, but then I went to clients and said, this is your moment. Like, build your brand now, invest now, like stand out from the crowd in a very empathetic way and appropriate way, but don't say we're here for you anymore. Like, I don't want to hear that. What are you actually going to do? Like, what are you going to do for your, you know, I work with consumers. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do for them? Because I don't want to see another commercial that says we're here for you. And so I did push <laughs> our clients and the ones that launched communities during the time period are very successful right now. And, and I love that. Again, a little bit of a risk for some of them, depending on where their business is right now and supply chain issues, but um, certainly have seen the ones that are willing to take a little bit of that risk and embrace what's happening and saying, okay, how am I going to make the best of it are doing well. So I, I love that piece of it. And you know, I love this topic, women own business <laughs> um, and, and just women run companies. Um, you know, how are the women owned businesses doing during this period of disruption? Like from what you're seeing? So, uh, everything I'm going to say, just because I'm a man, I'm going to put a caveat, a little big asterisk, which is this is not formal research. This is just anecdotal, what I've come across in my own travels. 
women-owned businesses tend to keep a lot more cash in their bank account. They do it in a way that I think harms them during expansionary periods and probably help them during this period. So harm them in the sense that if a male-run business has you know, a profit of a million dollars and it just deploys it back into the business to innovate, 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 and, and, and a female-run business just chooses to be more secure and keep the million dollars, you know, that male-run business could, could surpass the female-run business because they've reinvested in the right way. Um, so men t- tend to have less money in the bank, you know, male entrepreneurs and male-run companies than female. Um, and as a result, it's almost like they're using more of the fuel that they have. That being said, a lot of women have extra money in the bank. And so when, when, if there's a, a revenue hit, which a lot of people took a revenue hit, they can spend the money. They can keep their teams intact. That may or may not be a good idea. I mean, a lot of teams have been broken up and maybe there's nothing wrong with that, right, but they right. have the money. The second thing is um, when I describe moonshots and moneymakers, so these are money-making businesses that reinvest into bigger ideas that can be 10 or 100 times bigger than the, the idea that started them off. We see that this is a quality that men t- tend to be attracted to a little bit more than women. So as Birthing of Giants has gotten more into find that thing that's going to make your business 10 or 100 times bigger. There's been a change in the number of men and women in the program to the detriment of women. So we were we are examining that, we're thinking about that, but um, we're seeing that women are, there's three things, they keep more cash in the bank, they get a little bit freaked out at when they hear that their company could be 100 times bigger. Um, and women have a challenge that also, you, you know about all these yeah, first two yeah. very well. The third is that women are even more so than men. They wear the multiple hats. They are CEO, often a spouse, often a parent. And men do a better job at saying, when I'm at the office, I'm just a CEO. Yeah. And women seem to be all three all the time. Yeah. I call them the multitasker. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and that may make you who you are, Sue, but that's also kind of has a, a price because you just don't spend as much time on the company as right. they might. I wonder if the money thing is related to risk. And again, I haven't seen the research, but okay, so you've seen. So women are maybe less likely to take some of the risks that, that well, men Well, I think all three of those things add up. I mean, yeah. number one, they have more money that they, they don't want to invest in the, in the big idea that makes them 10 times, 100 times bigger. Two, they have trouble imagining themselves 100 times bigger. I'm just, yeah. it's just one of these things that it's not for me to say, but I just, I yeah. just see them struggle with it. And three um, is that they are very focused on the other responsibilities in their life. Yeah. <clears throat> and sometimes that stands in the way of the big home run swing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why I do love supporting other women entrepreneurs and we can support each other. But I certainly think that to your point, there is there is um, some learning and growth maybe as a, as a group that we can do. Um, and I know I, and that is, I think, one of the things I learned later also, like listening to and taking advice asking for help, I was very afraid to do that. So I think that that's, this is all part of that risk-taking component of it. And you are a very important part of this, Sue, because like we, we know this over and over again now, is that younger people need to see people farther down the line doing it. And so, you know, when I think of those undergrads and the 20-some-odd-year-old folks and the women in that group, they just need to see somebody like you. They need to see it. Not everyone is like you, and you have mentors that came before you as well. But you know, we just need to see it and it gets real specific, right? They might say, well, yeah, she's a woman, but they say, yeah, but she grew up here. I grew up there. I mean, there's a million reasons why people have trouble identifying with somebody. Right. They just need more and more people that they can see doing it in order to believe that they can do it. 
Yeah, I love that. And that, that is why I mentor for my alma mater, University of Delaware. I mentor a lot of uh, the young, young female graduates to help them because I, I didn't, again, I didn't have that. So I think that that's really important as well. So we're, we're getting ready to wrap up. Is there a positive story, Louis, or something that you can share with the audience or just a note you can leave us on? We are called the Happy Marketer Connection. <laughs> I, I always say I am the ultimate optimist, but is there something that you might share as a leaving thought, a final thought for the audience? Yeah, so uh, I'll just tell you the, the biggest, most amazing story that came out of COVID, which really just entirely speaks to the heart of entrepreneurship and how uh, I believe that you know it will be not government officials, not even doctors or scientists, but it's going to be entrepreneurs that innovate our way out of this mess we're in. This one gentleman in our program got together with two other businesses, and they, in 30 days' time, this has been written about in the New York Times and other places, in 30 days' time, invented like a simple, light, inexpensive ventilator. In 30 days' time, got it approved by the FDA, and in 30 days' time, got $20 million of orders. Wow. 30 days to invent it, create and lock down the supply chain, get FDA approval and get $20 million of orders in 30 days. Now, that was Amazing. a life and death kind of moment and extraordinary things happened. That's not too easy to repeat, but that's what we all need to figure out. How can we innovate our way out of all of this to the next place? Yeah. And let's big because if you know anybody who's gotten involved in FDA, 30 days is... Crazy. It's unheard like, of. Unheard of. So, <laughs> I came from you know, pharma. Unheard of. <laughs> yeah. So seize the moment. Yeah. And take the risk and, and ask the question, can this be done? Yes. Okay. Now, how do we make it happen? I love that. I love that. I will have to look up who that is and, and read, the, read the article because that's so inspiring. Well, Lewis, thank you so much for your time. How do people find you, your program, and get in touch with you to learn more about it? So real simple is birthingofgiants.com. Uh, very simple. But also um, for any one of your listeners that wants a kind of a fun book that talks a bit about how you do all this, it's called The First Habit. So birthingofgiants.com the slash The First Habit. And um, what you'll find in that book is a, it's like a 50 page workbook of how do you align the thing that you're especially good at that has to do with making money with the biggest possible opportunity that you can think of. And so the first habit is based on the idea that I've interviewed about a thousand entrepreneurs. And like you, they always have that thing that they're especially good at that has to do with how they make money. And they just keep driving at it, driving at it and expanding it and expanding it. And that's every great success story you've ever heard. I love it. I love it. Lewis, this was so fun. You know, I always love speaking to you. I'm so glad we reconnected. And I think the pandemic has done that. You know, it's allowed me to reconnect yes. with people from my previous, previous years, but thank you so much. I'm excited and I encourage everybody to check out Birthing of Giants and, uh, and all of your books, of course. So thank you for your time today. Thanks, Sue. Thank you so much, Lewis. It's always fun to speak to you and I certainly learn something every time. I also hope that guests listening today are highly considering the Birthing of Giants program. To hear more stories and lessons from Happy Marketers, be sure to subscribe to the Happy Marketer Connection podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And to learn more about community building, our Vesta solution delivers community-powered marketing to elevate your digital presence, deliver predictive insights, and transform your consumers into lasting brand advocates. And I welcome you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Sue Freck, or you can, of course, find us at Vesta-Go.com.